You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Representative Jerry Tour, who is probably the most respected member of the Indiana House on a bipartisan nature. Never, ever heard a bad word about Representative Tour. We're very happy to have you on the podcast today. And let me introduce someone who you may know, and that is Jim Shella, Hall of Famer. Good morning. Thank you, sir, for coming on the podcast. Glad to be here. We've been trying to get you for a while, and... We're very grateful for you making time. We're losing a true public servant. Uh, Jerry's a Republican who represents portions of Carmel and Westfield, and he's announced his retirement from the Indiana House, where he has served since 1996. Tor is a chair of the House Judiciary Committee and vice chair of the House Joint Rules Committee. He is also a member of the House Employment, Labor, and Pensions Committee, and the Rules and Legislative Procedures Committee. Jerry twice received the Indiana Chamber of Commerce Government Leader of the Year Award. Only three people have received it twice. Mr. Shella, do you know who the other two are? I do. Go ahead. Brian Boswell and Dick Luger. That is correct. Jim, why don't you go ahead? I know you two have known each other for a long time, so I'm just going to sit back and listen. You're retiring at an age that some people consider retirement age. Certainly I do. But in, in the General Assembly, there are folks there who hang on into their 80s. Why are you giving it up? Well, first of all, let me make clear, I'm not completely retiring. I'm still going to be working. I'm just not running for re-election. I wish I hadn't let him use that word retirement in my 
news release. You're retiring from the General Assembly. I am retiring from the General Assembly. That's true. When I first got elected, I was very honored. I thought I'd be lucky to serve two or three terms in the district where I was from, which was in that those days very competitive in the primary. I'm pretty happy with what I accomplished while I was there. It's been 28 years. That's a pretty good run. But uh, quite frankly, the campaigning is no fun anymore. Your your district was competitive in the primary back in the 90s. Now it's competitive in the general. That's true. And And the negative aspect of the campaigning, I've never liked. I've never allowed them to do that for my campaign. They've urged me to do that in 2020 and 2022. And I said, nope, I don't do that. I've always promised I never would, and I'm not going to. But that doesn't keep people from lying about me or stretching the truth about me and painting me Mm -hmm. to be something I'm not, which uh, has been very frustrating. But it's just... It's just no fun to campaign anymore. I'm pretty proud of my record. I don't have anything big on the horizon that I want to accomplish. So it's time to let somebody younger come in and take over. There's a lot of talk in political circles about the changing demographics in Hamilton County, specifically the southern part of Carmel. Does that have anything to do with your decision? In the last redistricting, the southern part, south of 116th Street that I used to represent, went away in the district, and I got pushed up a little bit into Westfield. And by the way, I didn't ask for that. When we did the redistricting, I told them, look, I'm not going to be here another decade. I'm not going to ask for anything. You draw the district you think is appropriate for the redistricting as a whole. And then I'll make my decision one way or the other based based on what it looks like. But, uh, but yeah, that's a part of what plays into what I said about it's not fun to campaign anymore. It's it's become negative. Groups that don't like me spend a lot of money against me outside of the opponent's campaigns. And the Republican Party has changed a lot. I've got friends who are mainstream Republicans, which is where where I would put you, who say that my party has left me. Uh, do you feel like uh, you're a mainstream Republican anymore? I do, yes, um, and I, I, th- I think the answer to that is the for those who think the parties move too far to the right, the folks who don't just need to stay more involved. And that's that's exactly right, and work a little harder. I really despise this term, Rhino, which stands for Republican name only, because that's used mostly by Republicans. Yeah, yeah, and I, <laughs> and, and, and I have been called that. And, and it drives me nuts because those people are assuming that their group alone, people who think like they do, are the sole arbiters of what the party should stand for. And that's not correct in my view. Are you a Trump supporter? I have I voted for him twice in November, never voted for him in a primary, never will vote for him in a primary. If he's the nominee in November next year, I will probably vote for him again. But isn't it fair to say, Jim, excuse me, that the, the, the Trumpian influence is not as pronounced in your district as it is in a lot of others? I think I recall that that, that Biden won Carmel and Fishers or won Carmel, but mm-hmm. Trump won Hamilton County. Same thing four years before. Yeah, and I'll tell you, 2020, it was interesting going door to door with Trump on the ballot. And I never 
fudged on what I believed in with anybody that I talked to. But depending on whether we figured out they were an ardent Trump supporter or a Trump hater, I would sometimes change the message just slightly. I'd, I'd never vary from what I believed, but I would just, you know, you massage, emphasize certain some, things. There's some things you don't have to bring up. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But uh, that part of it's not fun either. And it looks like he's probably going to be on the ballot next November. And it'll be interesting because, no, he's uh, he's very popular. With some, it's very divisive. He's very popular with some, very hated by others. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about what you accomplished in the General Assembly, because you have a couple of signature accomplishments, I would say. One of those being the adoption of daylight saving time in Indiana. I could write a whole book about that. <laughs> so could Shella, I think, <laughs> covering it. I can tell you, when I got to Indiana, I, the first legislative session I covered was 1983. And there was a daylight saving time bill in, in the 1983 General Assembly, carried by Elmer McDonald, a uh, state senator from Fort Wayne. And uh, it went down in the state Senate 49 to 1. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I wasn't aware of that one. <laughs> so attitudes had to change a little bit. I remember when Senator Lovers tried a little later, but I didn't remember 83. Yeah. Um, it was considered a joke back then. Yeah. Um, and... He, he, it was actually Mitch Daniels' campaign promise that you carried through the General Assembly. That was an interesting – that was the interesting part because he did talk about it a little bit during the campaign, but that was not on his legislative agenda in 2005. It was not on the House Republican agenda in 2005. Because he had talked about it during the campaign, I assumed we would do it. And so I had filed a bill several times before. You remember Representative Tiny Adams, who was a Democrat from Muncie, right? Right. Um, he and I would both file bills, and we'd name the other as the co-author. But 2005 was my first term in the majority, or first session in the majority. Yeah, that's right. And so I just assumed we were going to do it. So I kept pressing my friend Randy Bohr to have a – he chaired the Commerce Committee. Kept pressing him to have a committee meeting, and he kept putting me off. And he was focused on another large bill at the time. But finally convinced him to have a committee hearing. And once we did, he became my biggest advocate in the caucus. Because once he heard the testimony – and people said things like, oh, how hard is it to just remember that's an hour different or whatever, or to remember what time it is? And it's not, it wasn't so much us understanding here as people outside the state knowing and understanding. And we had business people come into the committee hearing and told us all kinds of stories about how our failure to change when virtually the re all the rest of the country and most of the free world changed clocks. Every state except Arizona, Arizona. and Hawaii, right? Yeah, and in Hawaii it doesn't make sense because they're so close to the equator. Mm -hmm. But uh, we heard all these businesses tell us different stories about ways that it interfered with their business, interstate business, that the ordinary person would never have thought about. My brother's an airline pilot, and he was like, you have no idea what confusion and chaos sure. it creates when we didn't switch exactly so after that committee hearing and by the way the opponents were the seven outdoor theater owners 
and one kind of crazy guy who actually passed out while he was testifying <laughs> in the Senate committee. Uh, you remember that, right? I was there. So then Randy was my big advocate, and he really helped push it. And I can tell you stories about how we finally got the Senate to move it and so forth. And uh, Because you recall, my original bill was on the third reading calendar, and died during the third reading deadline massacre when the Democrats walked out. So we had to resurrect it in a Senate bill in the second half of the session. Mm -hmm. And so it was quite a process. And like I say, I could write a whole book about what we went well, through. And, and that was 2005. It's now 2023. And and I'm entertained by, by folks on social media when daylight saving time goes away in the fall and they start complaining about how dark it gets in the evening and they blame daylight saving. Exactly. Time. <laughs> that drives me nuts too. <laughs> they, they, for, they forget that we've been that way in the winter for 50 years. Can I ask a quick question, Jim? Was it a harder decision or fight to enact daylight saving time, or was it more difficult to choose between Eastern and Central time? The, the General Assembly actually didn't have authority over that. The time zone is controlled by the U.S. Department of Transportation. Although, the, although your bill made a recommendation, correct? Well— yeah, as a compromise to get the thing passed, I think what it ended up saying was that we urged DOT to come and hold hearings to determine appropriate time zones. Because that, to me, that wasn't the fight. To me, the issue was we don't change time, everybody else does, and that creates confusion. Yeah. Although Mitch Daniels in his campaign had suggested that he would prefer central time. He suggested that may, I th if I recall right, exactly what he says would, was maybe that makes more sense. But he wasn't real firm about it one right. way or the other. But that, but for folks who wanted either central time or to stay the way we were, that that gave them encouragement mm -hmm. to support the bill, and some of them felt like they got double crossed. And let me say that uh, really, oh yeah, that's true. That's fair. But at least they had their opportunity. I just remember being interviewed by Jim Shella and staffing state party chairman Murray Clark to be interviewed by Jim Shella just about daylight saving time and its political implications because 2006 turned out to be a, a pretty tough year for Indiana Republicans. We lost the House. We had some victories, but we also lost three congressional districts. I was communications director. Do you, do you think the Republicans paid a price for DST? Well, I in think, those elections, I think there were two sides: uh, Troy Woodruff, Troy Woodruff, and Steve Heim. And Steve ended up voting against it on third reading, but he voted for it in committee. Mm. And so, in Northwest Indiana, or specifically in his district, they started calling it Heim time <laughs> because the people up there wanted to be tied to Chicago. That's correct. That's yeah. got Jennifer <laughs> Wagner written all over it. Yeah, and and let me just defend the farmers a little bit because you guys. I think both know I grew up on a farm in Putnam County. The farmers caught a lot of flack that, oh, the cows don't know what time it is to come in to be milked or whatever, and all that nonsense. The real argument that the farmers had was very legitimate. It wasn't compelling enough to stop us from changing, but it was a legitimate argument, and that is that farmers, in addition to farming their land, also are involved in their communities, maybe on the county council or church mm. meetings and the like. School events. Yeah, school events. And when it gets dark later, they don't care what time it is 
as far as working on the farm, but they cared about what time it was in the community and when they had to stop working an hour earlier to make it to those community meetings, it was costly to them. And so it was a legitimate argument that they had. Yeah. Any, ch- of, any uh, chance that, that Governor Daniels wasn't going to sign it because it wasn't central? Oh, no. No. In fact, I think he ended up recommending to DOT that we that the most of the states stay on Eastern. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. We're talking to... Representative Jerry Tor, one of the most beloved members of the General Assembly. We are joined, as we often are, by Jim Shella. Jim, you want to uh, ask Mr. Tor here about his second major accomplishment? <laughs> the, the other signature accomplishment, I would call it, is, is right to work. And tough as daylight saving time was, right to work was maybe three times tougher. Well, we certainly had more protesters. Had a lot of protesters. Yeah. A lot of people don't know, that took me eight or nine years. I was vice chair of the House Labor Committee. Of course, we were in a minority at the time. And a gentleman from up around the South Bend area sought me out at the State House. He was in the State House and looked me up and was talking to me about right to work. I'd never heard the term. I didn't understand. I, I didn't know anything about it. And by by the way, whoever named it Right to Work it wasn't very good at <laughs> branding. Yeah, branding. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But nevertheless, he told me about it. I thought this is interesting, and so I started doing some research, and I wanted to look at some stuff that was not promoted just by the National Right to Work Committee. But I found a couple of different studies: one by the Allegheny Institute and one by the Mackinac Institute. One looked at the border effect between a state that was right to work and a state that wasn't right to work. And job growth in manufacturing, 25, 50, 75, 100 miles from the border. Uh, And it was very compelling. Uh, The other looked at a right to work law in conjunction with an interstate loop such as 465, or 269, or uh, the, you know, around the Jeffersonville area, the Louisville Loop. Um, And both showed significant difference in job numbers with those combinations or across the border. And I thought, here we are with no right-to-work border state at the time. And at Crossroads of America, it seemed to me that those effects would be amplified in Indiana if we had a right-to-work law. And so I put together a PowerPoint presentation, and for eight, nine years, I'd go anywhere in the state where I could get a group of interested people to sit down and watch it and let me talk to them. And I remember once meeting with the, locally here in Indianapolis with the the, you know, the small business association, what can't think what it's called, but, but the small business representatives, and one guy came up afterwards, and he said, thank Na- you. National Federation of Independent Yeah, NFIB. Yeah, NFIB. yeah, I talked to NFIB. Yeah. And this one gentleman came up afterwards, and he said, thank you so much for coming talking to us today. I didn't understand what this was. And when I first looked at our agenda, I thought, why are we going to listen to this union nonsense? <laughs> <laughs> he thought it was a pro-union concept. The unions thought otherwise. And, and to be fair, it's not anti-union. 
But it, but what it turned into be was a fight against the unions, oh. and, it, and it became a partisan issue. Oh, sure. And in 2011, it caused the Democrats to go to Illinois for six weeks. Right. Uh, Brian Bosma and I both had to have a state trooper with us just about anywhere we went downtown. I had protesters at my house uh, a couple of days. Um, can, can you be pro-union and pro-right to work? Absolutely. And I can't name names, but there were union leaders who told me that they supported it. The operating engineers from Northwest Indiana were in support of it. Were they? Yes. Yes. Okay. I was not aware of that. Uh, but uh, my dad was in the Teamsters for 30 years. And when I had to go on TV and defend right to work, I wasn't really a fan. So I let Kip 2 take all of my time. But how could you, how do you square that circle? Or is that a false choice? It's just actually it was interesting because in my research, I thought the important reason to do it was to bring employers to Indiana. But when we did some polling, when we, when we finally decided, Speaker Bosma decided this is going to be House Bill 1001 in 2012, and we're going to do this. He did some polling, and we found out that what really rang true with voters was the idea, the concept of the freedom of the worker to choose whether or not to associate with the union. But we'd have the union workers come into the committee and they'd testify about how awful this was and it was going to destroy the union. And then I would ask them all, I'd ask every one of them, in your work where you work, how many of your coworkers do you think would quit the union, quit paying dues if this passes? And to a man, they said, oh, nobody I work with would quit paying dues. And I said, then what are you afraid of? Because what has the result been? I don't think it's been nearly as dramatic in terms of existing union employers as some of the em employers thought. I will tell You're you. saying the benefits haven't been what you anticipated. Oh, no. I'm saying the, the, angst. I'm saying the detriment mm -hmm. to the unions isn't what they thought it would have been. Maybe in terms of new employers coming in, but not current. Although there was, I heard one story. What the heck? I'll say I'll name names. Lane Bryant was an American company that got bought by Red Cats, a French company. And when Red Cats bought them, they forced a union on the employees. And it caused a lot of consternation in the workplace, apparently, I'm told, from a friend of mine that worked there. Their contract came up between the time Governor Daniels signed the bill on February 1st, because remember, we wanted to get it out of the way before the Super Bowl. So he signed the bill on February 1st, but it was effective, I think, March 15. Between that time, the Red Cats union contract came up for a vote. And they rejected it so that it had to be renegotiated after the right to work law went into effect. Mm. And my friend at work there told me that after the new contract under the right to work law, he said everything was back to normal in terms of relations in the workplace and everybody was so much happier. And I'm sure it's not, there are other places where workers think the union is the greatest thing since sliced bread. Mm. And if so, God bless them. That's great. Because it didn't take away any right to unionize or organize and negotiate. It just said nobody's forced to be a part of it just as a condition of employment. The other story I want to tell you is Jim Schellinger told me a few years ago. I used to be Commerce Secretary for the state. Commerce Secretary and former 
candidate for governor. On the Democratic side. And Jim told me a few years ago, he said, Jerry, he said, when I was running for governor, I was dead set against your right to work bill. He said, now that I'm secretary of commerce and my job is to bring employers to Indiana, he said, I can't thank you enough for what you did for the state of Indiana. Although we learned Jim was a little flexible prior to that. (laughs) You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NF. P, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is retiring State Representative Jerry Tour, and we are joined by our frequent co-host, Hall of Famer Jim Shella. Jerry, is there a particular Hoosier leader and/or legend you admire? Oh gosh, most. Um, yeah, there are a lot, but I'd say near the top has to be former Lieutenant Governor John Motts who was probably the most qualified candidate for governor in Indiana that ever lost the election. But there was on, he came on the podcast and talked about that. He was very philosophical. He didn't seem bitter. When you looked at him as he was relaying, retelling it, there was, there's still, this was, I interviewed him in 2019. There's still some sting as there would be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I'd have to say, gosh, Mitch Daniels, Brian Bosma, great leaders that, weren't afraid to tackle big issues and move the state forward. And they're an awful lot from way before my time. How did you get along with Democrat speakers? John Gregg and Pat Bauer were the two speakers, I think, during your term from the other party. It's interesting. John Gregg would often give me a really hard time when I would come up on the floor to speak on a bill or whatever. But in my first or second term, I think it was my first term, I was an advisor on a work comp bill, or maybe I was comp free, I can't remember which, but anyway, we had a workers' compensation bill, and it would have increased benefits, which the labor unions wanted, but it also changed a couple things because there had been some court decisions that the business side thought had been unfair on work comp cases. And so they wanted to undo those legislatively. And so those things were always a compromise back in those days. And so it was the last day of session. We're having a conference committee meeting on that bill in the speaker's office, John Gregg's office. John Gregg was voting for me and the other members back before that was, that rule was enforced. He probably cast 30 votes for me that day. Mm -hmm. But at one point, my good friend Ed Roberts, who was one of the first ones to push me to run for this office. Lobbyist for the Manufacturers Association. And Jerry Payne, who lobbied for the AFL-CIO. They couldn't quit arguing about agreements they thought they had that were broken like 20 years earlier. (laughs) And so finally, I left the speaker's office and I went up the rostrum and I asked John Gregg, I said, do you want us to pass a work comp bill work comp bill this year? And he said, I do. And I said, then you got to come down and you got to throw all the lobbyists out of your office so we can get this done. And so he handed the gavel over to whoever the pro tem was at the time. 
Chad Dobas. I think I think it was Chad. Yeah, and I got great stories about Chad too. Chad was a great friend of mine. He came into the office and he said, "All right, all you lobbyists out." And Ed and the lobbyists for the state chamber—they're all getting up. Jerry Payne's still sitting here, right? And Greg looks at him and says, nope, Jerry, you two, out. <laughs> and Jerry's like, what the heck? <laughs> <laughs> um, I sat down and I wrote some numbers on the back of, for benefit increases. I wrote some numbers on the back of my comp, uh, copy of the proposed conference report. And I put those in front of my friend Dean Young, a Republican from Blackford County, who is, I think, still on the bench in Blackford County now. He was a Republican, but he he always sided with the labor unions and the trial lawyers on issues where he and I differed. But I put my numbers in front of him, and I said, Dean, could you live with this? And he took a couple minutes to study it, and he said, yeah, I think so. And I said, then you go sell your union friends on it. And by 5 o'clock that day, we had a conference report signed and passed a work comp bill. After that, John Gregg sent me a really nice handwritten note, and he said, hey, I know sometimes I write you pretty hard, but I really appreciate your work on this work comp bill or something to that effect, and I really appreciate that. And we've had a really good relationship since. What about Mr. Bauer? That was a little different. I respect Pat. I remember, I think the only time I went to see him in his office that I recall is when we had to vote on daylight saving time, and it was obviously very close. And Tiny Adams was had heart issues or something. He was not well, and he was not coming. But I knew Tiny really wanted to come and vote for daylight saving time. And I went to Speaker Bauer's office and asked him if he wouldn't consider having Tiny come in and make it very easy for him just come in vote for that bill and then go right back out because he really wanted to and of course pat said no and his whole agenda was he ended up succeeding he, he's a very brilliant politician he wanted to trap somebody like troy woodruff which he ended up doing because jim you'll recall he had three democrats scott Reskey, david orentlicker and now oh, I'll think of her name in a second from Anderson. Terry Joe? Yeah, Terry Austin. They had all promised constituents, they'd all promised to vote for the bill when it would actually pass. But Pat was prohib- asking them to vote no until it was actually going to pass. And so we had a couple of votes where we ended up, we got 49, 48, 40, whatever, but we, there were never 51 no votes, but it took us two or three votes to get to 51. And Pat was standing right behind them. And in fact, I remember I had heard that David O'Rourke's campaign treasurer was Mickey Maurer. And I had heard that Mickey had called Orrettlicker and said, hey, quit screwing around and vote for that bill. Maurer was the... Running the IEDC at the time, was he not? No, this would have... I thought he was his first Commerce Secretary, he and the the, yeah, but I the lady from up north. I think I this was the year before it actually went into effect. The IEDC went into okay. effect, I believe. But Maurer was clearly a Daniels supporter. Yeah, this is this is 2005. So, yeah, that was the same yeah. year. That same year we created IEDC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Pat was standing behind them. I think they all three sat right almost together. 
And Pat was standing behind them, and he was going to tell them they could go green when got 51. You know, the speaker can tell. He, he's got a screen. Anybody out in the audience trying to count, it's pretty hard to do. And uh, Troy Woodruff, we'd had to knock down, drag out carcass over it. Troy Woodruff, who was a Marine, he saw a grenade and he jumped on it. He reached over. I remember hearing Kathy Richardson say, Troy, no. (laughs) (laughs) While Brian was staring down a couple other members that should have voted for it and didn't. And Woodruff just reaches over, hits his button. Brian saw 51, closed the machine. And then that Marine ran away from the media. And (laughs) of course he did. But I'll never forget, after the whole thing was done and we passed it and the the media all flocked around me, just picture me on the front page of the Star with with somebody from the governor's office, Blackberry, talking Mm -hmm. to Governor Daniels on the phone. But after everything cleared out, Orentlicker was still sitting there in his chair totally dumbfounded trying to figure out how he was going to explain that he didn't vote for daylight saving time. Jim, was that fun? We talk a lot about supermajorities are bad. Of course, as a Republican, I think the current supermajority is pretty darn good. But was it more fun to cover when it was, when the, especially the the Senate's always been Republican, but the House was so close. I've said over and over again, covering a supermajority is terrible. It's it, all of the debate takes place in caucus. I remember that. I don't know whether my good friend Brian Bosma would want me to repeat this or not, but I remember the night we got the supermajority on election night and the numbers we kept getting reports that this one was called, this one was done. And as we crossed over the two thirds threshold, I remember Brian saying something like, yeah, I was thinking more like 64, 65. <laughs> well, we asked we, him about uh, it. As a speaker, you want to be able to manage people, and, and it's a lot easier to manage them if you don't have a supermajority. You convince people to, to do things you want to do, as you just described uh, Pat Bauer doing. Um, although I'll say Pat Bauer was, was a, a generally a brilliant strategist that moved to Illinois works against that record. Oh, it sure did. That really backfired on him. Yeah. Backfired within the, it, with obviously outside, but inside the state house as well. Oh, it was mostly outside. I think most of the Democrats, I know some of them didn't want to go. Some of them thought it was a mistake, but most of them thought it was solidarity. They were really protecting the state from right to work. And then after we took that off the table, they had a whole bunch of other demands too. But it was, I remember Peggy Welsh was one who told me it was horrible going in county fair and whatnot and constituents would come up and just berate them. Why weren't you there to do your job, whether you agreed or not? And it completely backfired with the public. Yeah. What, what's your take on the supermajority? I could, kind of like Bosman indicated, it, 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 it's... You'd rather not. It's nice if you agree with... And, and I didn't like the close to the 5347. I first came in the second 5050, but with John Gregg as speaker and the Democrats in charge because of the law that had been passed after the first 5050. 
which the Republicans agreed to because they thought they went back to governor's office and that was the linchpin to who controlled the General Assembly, correct? Yeah, and after... And, and oops, I, and oops. I, whoops. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I told former Speaker Manweiler, who was the majority or minority leader when I first got elected, I told him, I said, that statute's flawed anyway, because it says that if there are equal numbers of two parties in the elected to the House, that the speakership and all that will go to the party that elects the governor or secretary of state, whichever is up that term. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I said, that's really flawed because there could be equal number of two parties elected with one Green Party and one Libertarian, mm. <laughs> despite what the mix is between the Democrats right. and Republicans. And in fact, I intended to fix that before I leave, but I didn't file a bill this year, so I don't know whether I can fix that yet or not. But you can file an amendment, but uh, I could, yeah. But that, but but it is a little bit of a flawed statute for some point in the future. Yeah. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our co-host is Jim Sella, and our guest is Jerry Tour. Jim, I'll ask you a question, sir. Sure. Your sources at the State House were unparalleled, and that only comes from relationships. Is it difficult to keep, and obviously you did it, but is it difficult to keep the necessary sort of professional distance with someone like a Jerry Tour who's so honest, so forthcoming, so engaging, so respected? I, I would say that Jerry probably wasn't as forthcoming when I was asking him about pending. It's all about relationships. I always said it was my job to get to know as many people as I could, as well as I could. And and people would ask me, and you develop friendships, and people would ask me, how can you do something that's going to put a friend in a bad light or, or criticize a friend? Actually, I think if, if, if you're professionals and you understand what's going on there, it's maybe easier to criticize a friend as long as you're on the mark. And if you're not on the mark a friend should be willing to to come back at you so it's there's a lot of give and take there it's I'd, people have encouraged me to do some college teaching and i don't know that you can teach a lot of this stuff <laughs> more difficult with a supermajority probably Probably, I found people, once they got a supermajority, people didn't talk to, to reporters near as much. Although they did talk more to, to lobbyists, it seems. And some of that's technology. We had a couple of lobbyists on a while back talking about how folks will text them from inside caucus now, which before before texting that, you had a lot harder time finding out what went on yeah. in caucus. And which, of course, caucus members are not supposed to do. Yeah. Good luck Jerry, with you, that. <laughs> yeah. Jerry, you have a, and I only know this because of my interaction with them, you have an excellent reputation and relationship with reporters. Is that something that you've consciously worked to forge, or is it more of a sense of Jerry's the old-time Republican we can get along with and understand? I, Both? I, I think it's... I think a lot of what Jim said was really right on the mark. It's a matter of trust. It's a matter of there's some reporters that I won't respond to because, and I it took me a while, but and I know this frustrates the reporters, but but I finally learned you have to stick with your point no matter what the question is because you do a ten minute interview and. Maybe, if you're lucky, 30 seconds of it ends up on the air on the nightly news. 
And it's always the thing that you wish you hadn't said after or that you didn't put it quite the way you should have or whatever. That's One, not true, is it, Jim? Yeah, he says you don't didn't put it quite the way you should have. Often it's you told the truth. <laughs> now there's that too. That's different. But I will say with Jim, Jim was always very fair with me. And in fact, I remember when I had a primary opponent, and the the trade unions were sending out a lot of mail against me because I had helped create the transit authority for Indigo and theoretically to spread to around to the surrounding counties, but none of them voted to do it. And, but they were, the trade unions were spending a bunch of money against me. And Jim called or texted me, will to know if he could come out and interview me. And protocol is, I would, I would have been supposed to call our campaign team, mm-hmm. our campaign folks and say, hey, should I take this interview? With Jim, I never had to worry about that because I knew I wasn't getting ambushed. And he and I knew he was seeing the irony in the trade unions <laughs> sending out this mail about the mass transit when they were wholly in support of it. In fact, I think when you got a hold of their lobbyist who was out in D.C. I guess I don't remember this. Oh, you don't remember this? No. You asked him about that and said, didn't you guys support the transit bill? And he said, yeah, we're 100% in support of mass transit and 100% opposed to Jerry Tor. <laughs> yeah, in, in terms of media relations, I think I had the benefit of being covering the General Assembly for 34 years, and I, the plan was for me to be there and to stay there. And so when you deal with somebody, you're not trying to just get today's story. you got to come back. And there are some folks who go down there who are just worried about today's story, and some of them take a very different approach. It's true. I want to ask you about recent headlines. We've seen former Representative Sean Everhart plead guilty to federal charges of bribery with regard to helping out a casino entity. How much of a stain does that put on the General Assembly, or is it just on individuals? I do think it reflects badly, and it's just, it's a shame. And I, quite frankly, I was surprised. I, I thought Sean was a lot brighter than that, and a lot. I've had conversations with several of my colleagues and said, who thought he wasn't going to help them with that bill anyway? Right. He had a casino in his district. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it does put a stain on all of us and the institution, and it's a shame from that standpoint. Do you worry that there will be more of that sort of thing? More of that sort of thing in the future? Or yeah, more, in terms more? of in, indictments or, or convictions? Oh, from that particular? Yes. I think there has to be some because he was – if he was – it was a cons- labeled a conspiracy, and clearly he's cooperating with the government. But it, but, but so the other, but the other, but somebody had to be on the other end of the phone making right. the offer. I guess I'm asking about other members of the General Assembly. I, I wouldn't think so. And full disclosure, I got some flack because the company I work for did the my my longtime friend John Keeler, who I'd done some work for in his family real estate and so forth. He came to me to do the title work on the new casino in Gary. Leaders and Legends podcast thinks that John Keeler's a good man. He's a great man. Patriot. Uh, he is. And I was really surprised he got caught up in what he was charged with. But 
But he brought that to me, and I thought, we've done business together. We've been friends since 1995 or before, and didn't think anything about it. And as soon as I realized they were going to be seeking legislation to move that license, I didn't realize the legislature had to do that because they were already working on buying land and so forth. But as soon as I realized, and this was before the session started, I called my CEO into my office and I said, hey, I just I found out this casino deal that they need some legislation this year. And so I don't want any of that, any of the company's profit on that to go into my commission structure because I just felt like that was the right thing to do. Is, is there an argument for a full-time legislature where you get paid X amount of money and you don't have outside income? You know, maybe there's an argument for it, but I don't think it's a very good argument. Um, We certainly don't want to be full-time as in session all year. I think one of the great things about our part-time General Assembly is that we have members who have all kinds of different backgrounds. We have not so many anymore, but members who practice law, We've had members that have been educators and uh, work in different kinds of businesses. Um, and it's helpful to have those people have those people in the room to say, explain how this really affects that particular. I mean, we have lobbyists that have that job, too. But I think it's helpful for us to go out and experience uh, life like everybody else does. I don't I, I would be re- very reluctant to suggest a full-time legislature. You want to take the next minute and defend lobbyists? Yeah, you know, every now and then I hear people talk about sometimes, oh, we ought to outlaw that or we ought to take him out and shoot him. And I'm like, okay, are you talking about Bob Kraft who lobbied for years for the interest of farmers? Are you talking about Kim Dodson who lobbies for Ark of Indiana children with yeah. disabilities? Uh, and she's amazing. Uh, yeah, and but the lobbyist thing is all everybody's at the steakhouse with their cigars passing that sort of thing that perception but it's only if you get in, and jim you can answer this question too about outlawing there are a bunch them. of there are a bunch of steakhouses downtown that do pretty good business <laughs> when the general assembly's in session i'll say that yep that's true and are there a lot of lobbyists who do damn good work it's not all on behalf of the mega company that's not even located here i'm not I think i'm I've, not registered to lobby so i can yeah as i've said on a previous podcast your average hoosier has probably half a dozen lobbyists that's, on there working for that's, them. That's the point I was just about to make. There's no doubt. When I and when I have it here, conversation with a constituent, I'll ask him, "You're concerned about this? Are you a member of AARP? You do this?" And I'll come up with about five or six different lobbyists that represent them in the state house. You're exactly right. Yeah, Jim. Jim, ask a couple more, and then we'll get to the five questions. You're a gun guy, right? I, I, yeah, I would say that's a fair assessment. Are our gun laws out of whack? No, I don't think so. Did permitless carry is a good good idea? Permitless carry is following the Constitution of the state and the United States. There are still prohibited possessors. And I think, quite frankly, I know that some in the media want to, and some of the gun control folks, advocates, want to say that the increased gun crime we've seen, that started in 2020, had nothing to do with permitless carry. And every time I see somebody try to tie a gun crime to permitless carry, it's somebody who's under 18 or somebody who was 
a prohibited possessor because of prior felonies or whatever. The current gun laws need to be enforced. The current gun laws are fine. They're not well enforced. And in fact, we'll go back to the, the FedEx shooting where Ryan Mears tw- tried to twist it around and say our our red flag law uh, wasn't adequate. He just didn't take a swing with the bat. There's a very good chance. I know it's speculation, but there's a very good chance that guy would not have been able to buy those firearms if Ryan Mears had followed the red flag law. But are there too many guns? Is there is access to guns too easy? No, not at all. You to to buy a gun from a licensed dealer, you have to pass a federal background check. That's not true in private sales. If I wanted to sell you one, if I sold one, being a responsible gun owner, if I sold one to somebody I didn't know well, I would go to a dealership and a deal licensed dealer and pay $25 for the background check. And the way that works is the gun actually gets transferred to the dealer and then the dealer sells it to the individual. I sold a rifle to a friend of mine because we shot together. We worked together. He liked it a lot more than I did. And so I sold it to him. I knew he had passed a federal background check just a few weeks before because he bought a new shotgun. And I worked with him. I knew he wasn't a felon, hadn't committed a felony since he passed the background check. So what would have been the purpose of me having to get a background check on that sale or when my dad gave me possession of an over-under 12-gauge shotgun that he bought when my twin brother and I started hunting as young teenagers? And you can say there ought to be a background check on every sale. We just heard this story about a lady who was going to sell a couple of guns to a teenager, and then it ended up in, they tried to steal it, and ended up being a shooting out of that event. She started shooting first, right? Somebody like that is not going to get a background check if it's required in every sale. The criminals aren't going to comply with that. So strengthening the gun laws is not the solution to ending the gun crime. Okay, you got one more session left. 2024, it's a short session, non-budget year. Is there anything you hope to accomplish before you leave? Yeah, a couple things. I passed a bill out of the House last year to prohibit local governments from entering into project labor agreements on public projects that basically limits those who can bid on the project to union contractors. I think that's unfair to the non-union contractors, and it's unfair to the taxpayers because they end up generally paying a a premium uh, under that scenario. Um, It stalled in the Senate on a tie vote in the committee. We've got a new member on the committee now, as I understand it. I'd like to see that pass. I've got a couple of tort reform issues that I'd like to see move, but I don't know what the prospect is in that. Final question. You got Jim Brainerd leaving office after 28 years in Carmel as mayor, new mayor coming in. What's the prospects for Carmel's future? Oh, I think Carmel will continue in pretty much the same path. It's interesting because Mayor Brainerd had a great vision. He's built a beautiful city. Not everybody that used to live in Carmel and still do love it, but most people do. Some like the small bedroom community that we used to be and didn't want to change but but he's been a, built a beautiful city but that's also a big part of what's changed it to more purple 
and made elections there more difficult for Republicans. Uh, Sue Finkham, though, is pretty awesome. She is, yeah. Oh, she'll be a great mayor. Looking back on your votes, is there, would you, if you could take a mulligan on any of them, do you think I voted X? Maybe I should have voted one over X? Oh, yeah, sure. I can't think of one right off the top of my head, but there are always bills that we pass and then later we realize there was some unintended consequence or, gosh, if I thought ahead of time, I would have come up with a couple. Uh, I, I am pretty proud of, there were several times, especially when we were in the minority, where I was the only no vote. And in fact, I was the only no vote in the entire General Assembly on a bill that Governor Daniels vetoed, and then we sustained the veto. Which vote? Which bill? Oh, it's uh, it's not worth talking about. It had to do with... What you're saying is you sugar. read the bill. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's not sugar cream pie. It's not tenderloin. So it's not... Oh, that's another thing I'd like to get accomplished this year is to make sure people understand Indiana does not have a state pie. <laughs> You're very active on social media, so I think you can get your message across. I don't know why that bugs me so much, but I think it was just because that pie day in the state house. It was it was a graduate program at Ball State University that took this on as as a, a project to try to push for a state pie, and they brought pies to the state house, and and they wanted it to be sugar cream, and they, didn't they get a they got some sort of resolution passed, but it was not an official pie yeah, I resolution. Thought, I thought it was all about Wix. <laughs> but it, it, I think so, they were tied, they so were the, tied to Wix. So the original, this was 2009. So the original resolution that the Senate passed urged the General Assembly to name sugar cream pie as a state pie. We don't have a state pie unless it actually ends up in Article 1. The way to, Title One, Article Two of the Constitution. Don't you figure the way to fix or this? The, the statute. If you just make pumpkin pie the official pie, that'll solve this. Yeah, or black raspberry, or <laughs> I'm not sure we need one. But and I don't know why it bugs me so much, except that Pie Day was so annoying. And when and when, the, when did the, you cover Pie Day, Jim? I did. I did. And here's my take on sugar cream pie: it needs some eggs. Yeah. Yeah, and then make yeah custard pie exactly. Right. We just make Long's donuts, the official <laughs> but, whatever but sweet. It, but it bugged us in the House, Republicans and Democrats both, because that's when the recession was hitting us, and we're all like, "Why are we talking about a stupid state pie?" One last question before we get to the five questions. I was told something. I need you to verify, Representative Tour. I was told something earlier this week, and I promised I would get you to comment. I was told earlier this week that the wonderful and marvelous Katie Carlson is your favorite Democrat. True or false? That's probably true. I got a couple. I've got several good friends, but yeah, Katie Carlson's a friend of mine. She gets the gold medal. Yeah, <laughs> we've reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Jim, do you want to ask, ask them? <laughs> I'm sure. There's the list underneath my notes. <laughs> Hey, I, I think... Uh, you don't have them memorized? I think I do. The first one is, what was your first job? Off the farm, where I didn't get paid. My first job was at Taylor Graphics in Greencastle, Indiana, where I first started doing the mail, and then the guy who did the photo processing was going to Europe for a month, so I spent most of the summer covering for him and doing photo processings for photo charms. 
technology that no longer exists. That's correct. Yeah. It still exists, but it's been superseded. Jim, I'm going to have an appendix to the second question, but you go ahead first. What was your first concert? Loggins and Messina at the, well, I mean, excluding band concerts at mm-hmm. high school and so forth, junior high. Uh, Loggins and Messina at the State Fair. I was there at the Palladium where the Carmel Symphony played your uh, composition. Tell us a little bit about your, and I listened, actually, to get in the mood for this podcast, I listened to Rhapsody in Blue, and tell us a little bit about your love of classical music. Uh, That was probably the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. I went to a professional guitar school in Hollywood, California. A lot of people don't know that. In fact, when I get introduced to speak somewhere and somebody's looked at my resume on the state website. It's Hanover and... And they'll say... (laughs) Here's something I'll bet you don't know about Representative Tor. But what I really wanted to do was write music for film, which I had studied with Mundell Lowe. And out of 60 long-haired guitar players, I was the only one who really took an interest in his class. And so he took me under his wing. So I I wrote some pieces and made a demo with just a, several short snippets. But, but the longest piece on there was a fanfare that I had written to demonstrate what I would write as a main title to a to a film and it's very much in the realm of john williams big bold brassy then i was on a committee to choose our new music director this would have been 2016 2017 and at the end of that process gave all the other committee members a cd of this recording that i'd made back in the early 1982 i think and that summer the ceo called me and he said, the new conductor and I think it would be fun if you conducted that fanfare on your CD to open our season and then introduce her to the audience. And you could have knocked me over with a feather. I said, of course. And he said, do you mind if we rename it Fanfare for a New Era? And I said, Alan, if you can let me conduct it in the Palladium in front of a live audience, you can call it whatever you want to. It was beautiful. I remember it. And I remember, I have to say this, I do remember you turning after the after it was played. And I thought you had tears in your eyes, so forgive me if I was wrong, but I can tell I, you were really moved. I probably, yeah. Question number three. If you could suggest any book to someone to read, which book would you recommend? I, sus- I think my favorite of all time is Breakfast of Champions by Kurt Vonnegut. But I'm currently in the middle of my friend Tom Saunders' book that you wrote a forward to. <laughs> I didn't realize it was out. Yeah. Yeah, just last week or so, I think. But, okay. Uh, yeah. For, former state representative Tom Saunders. That's probably going to be among my favorites when I get finished with it. Interesting. I got to make sure I get it, as if I don't have a photocopied version. <laughs> I think Tom owes me an autograph. <laughs> if you could witness any event in history... Be there in person as it happens. Which event would you choose? Wow, that's really tough. I would, just off the top of my head, I guess I'd have to say uh, Ronald Reagan's inauguration in 1981. Is that the one where it was freezing cold? No, that's that's 84, 85. 85, 85. yeah. Okay. All right. Plus in 1980, you get to see Rodney Dangerfield perform. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Uh, Final question. If you could have dinner 
with anyone living today, two hours off the record, just a chat, who would you choose? Eric Clapton. Uh, guitar player. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have a favorite do you have a favorite movie theme? A favorite movie theme? Yeah. Mine's Psycho. Jim, do you have one? Oh gosh. Instrumental, obviously not. Some. Yeah. Yeah, there's so much great work that goes back to Lalo Schifrin and of course I'm a big fan of John Williams. I, I got to meet him, spent a couple days with him. Oh, that's terrific. In a recording studio and he was very gracious with me. But Lalo Schifrin, didn't he do Mission Impossible? I think that's right. And then uh, Newman did Psycho, uh, Randy Newman's uncle, Alfred Newman. Is that right? That's right, yeah. That and, and Hitchcock doubled his salary because he loved the music so much. <laughs> okay. Jim, you want to say goodbye to Handsome Jerry Tour? Jerry, thanks for your time. Great, you bet. Great thanks, discussion. Th thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by... Garmont Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today has been Jerry Tor. Jerry, congratulations on your stepping aside from public service, at least in the Indiana General Assembly, but I can see, I can speak for every single person I know who knows you. We need more Jerry Tours, not fewer. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's Robert at VeteranStrategies.com. Mm -hmm.